Today's message comes from 1 Corinthians 9, 15 through 18. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would fix our minds upon you and upon the glory of your Son. We pray that you would prepare our minds and our hearts to to hear the word of God, to listen to it. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would apply it to our lives. Father, we pray that you would enable us to hear the message of the Apostle Paul that he desired for the church in Corinth to hear. Their situation is not terribly dissimilar from ours and from many other churches today. So, Father, we pray that you would grant us humble hearts, enable us to bow before your word. We pray that by your word, the power of your Holy Spirit, that our sin nature and our pride would be crushed so that we might be more like your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The greatest example, I think anyways, the greatest example in all of the Bible of what it looks like to be a servant is that of Jesus washing the disciples' feet in John. It's an amazing scene when you really try to picture it and put yourself there. Here are all of the disciples sitting around a table, or rather lying around the table as they would have eaten in that day, and they are preparing to partake of the, the Passover meal. Their feet are dirty and nasty from all of the, the traveling, the walking that, uh, that they have done, and And no one thinks to do what is traditionally done before sitting down to eat at an important meal such as this, which is to have their feet washed. 
you know, they were probably all sitting there looking around at each other because they would have known this is what should have been done. This isn't unique. This is what was always done in their traditional culture. And so you have to think that they were probably sitting there all looking around at each other and thinking to themselves, well, we don't have a servant. I mean, we're the disciples, and he's the master, and we follow him around, but we don't, we don't have a, a servant who follows along with us that we can get to wash our feet. What an interesting thought. They thought to themselves, there is no servant among us. So Jesus, the master, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of the universe, gets up from the table, removes his outer garment, he wraps a towel around his waist, he pours water into a large basin and begins to wash the disciples' feet. Something that usually the youngest child in a family or a slave would be asked to do. In fact, the scene is so jarring that Peter says to him, there is no way you're going to do this. There is no way you're gonna, I'm going to let you do this to me. Really, what Peter is reacting to is he's embarrassed that he didn't think of it himself. I see what you're doing, and there is just no way I'm going to let you wash my feet. And so Jesus says to him, you know how the story goes. If you won't allow me to do this, Jesus says to him, then you have no share with me. What Jesus was saying to Peter is essentially this. If I am your master, if I am truly your master, and you revolt or rebel against what I am trying to do, then you're not really my disciple, and you have no share with me. And so, of course, Peter recognizes what Jesus is saying. He says, well, in that case, wash my head and my hands too, because I am so your disciple. And if you want to wash my feet, have at it, and I'll even let you wash my hands and my head. Of course, Jesus says, well, that's not necessary. I just want to wash your feet. But what Jesus did for the disciples is like nothing that we can compare in our modern American world. We don't have a tradition like that. So it is difficult for us to really understand the gravity of what Jesus was doing to the disciples. Just as washing or taking care of somebody's feet today can be an uncomfortable and even a humbling thing to do, even if it is someone that you love, it was just as difficult back then, even though it was a tradition. Some of you have been there. Even if you are taking care of your aging parent who is in a nursing home, or maybe you're taking care of your spouse who is unable to care for himself or herself, taking care of someone else's feet 
is not high on the list of prestigious things to do. And yet Jesus got on his hands and his knees before the disciples and washed their feet. You know, what is often overlooked is that this is the only time we see in all of Scripture the Creator bowing before the creature. You ever think about that? Not to worship them, clearly not, but to serve them, to minister to them. The Creator bows before the creature and serves them. And yet so many of us creatures are far less willing to serve our fellow creatures. In fact, many of us will not even bow before the creator to the same degree that Christ was willing to serve the creature. But in the end, Christ did all that he did for one simple reason, to glorify God the Father and for the joy of loving people and ministering to them. That's what the author of Hebrews talks about. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, referring to Christ, the author of Hebrews says this, looking to Jesus, the founder of and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What does that mean? Well, it's not that the cross in itself was joyful. That wasn't something that Christ was looking forward to. Just read what he experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of his arrest and betrayal. His soul was greatly sorrowful. But Jesus was willing to endure the cross for the joy that lay beyond the cross. The joy that would come with knowing that he did his Father's will and he brought him great glory. The joy that would come with knowing that in his death he redeemed countless numbers of souls and brought them to himself. Now this is the point that Paul is driving home in our text this morning. Paul just finished arguing that as a minister of the gospel, he has the right to make his living from the gospel, but he has made no use of that right. Because, as he said in verse 12, he would rather endure anything rather than put a gospel in, put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. So he's now picking up on that point in verse 15 of our text this morning. And here, essentially, Paul makes the point that he preaches the gospel without pay. He preaches the gospel without pay 
so as not to be robbed of his ground for boasting. Listen to what he says in verse 15. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any provision. Paul wants to make sure that they understand that he is not writing on this subject. He's not writing on this subject as some backdoor attempt to make them feel guilty into paying him something. Right? This isn't reverse psychology for Paul. I don't want you to read this and think, oh, I feel, we feel terrible. We didn't realize we were supposed to be supporting you, and so we'll send you something. And so he throws that in there because he wants them to know that. I am not writing these things to secure any provision from you. Don't, don't miss the point of what I am saying. Why? Verse 15. Middle of verse 15. For... So here's his explanation for what he just said. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. He hasn't actually told us what that is yet, but he does not want to be deprived of his ground for boasting. He would rather die, he says. Is Paul being a little dramatic? I don't know, maybe. But he's certainly using strong language. He would rather die than to have the church feel obligated to pay him. Because if they did, as he says, it would rob him of his ground for boasting. That is, Paul preaches the gospel free of charge because that is what God has called him to do. He does so for God's glory and to minister to people. And he knows that if the church paid him, his motives would be brought under suspicion. And thus Paul goes on to say in verses 16 and 17 in order to explain why he feels compelled to preach the gospel free of charge. He says in verse 16, for if I preach the gospel, that in itself, preaching the gospel, if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. The fact that Paul preaches the gospel in itself gives him no ground for boasting. In other words, just because he preaches the gospel, though that is a good thing, it gives him no ground for boasting because people preach the gospel for all sorts of reasons. There's a lot of people who preach the gospel. Many of them aren't even saved. Recall in Philippians chapter 1, for example, Paul's sitting in a Roman prison writing a letter to the church in Philippi, and he says this to them, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Verse 16, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. So while preaching the gospel in, in, in itself is a good thing, the fact that he preaches the gospel does not give him ground for boasting because all kinds of people preach the gospel for all kinds of different reasons. In other words, big deal. 
So you go out street witnessing. You're one of those individuals that shares the gospel with every human being that crosses your path. The question that Paul's line of reasoning causes us to ask is, why? Why do you do it? Because let's not forget that when Christ sent out the 12 disciples to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, to preach the kingdom of God in Luke chapter 9, sends them through all the cities of Israel. And when he sent out the 72 in Luke chapter 10, telling them to go into the cities and proclaim the kingdom of God, let's not forget that Judas was with them. Judas was one of them. Judas went out proclaiming the gospel. Big deal. Why did he do it? Let's also not forget Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says, on that last day, many will come to me saying, Lord, Lord, look what we've done in your name. We performed miracles. We prophesied, even the demons obeyed, and Jesus will declare unto them, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, for I have never known you. You see, just because people engage in Christian activities, just because people engage in Christian ministries, just because people seem to make a radical impact in the lives of other people, for the kingdom and share the gospel profusely, none of that means their motives are pure. This is what Paul warned the Ephesian elders about in his farewell address to them in Acts chapter 20, verse 28 and following. There he tells them, pay close attention to themselves and to the church because, he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. And from among your own cells will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. That's a powerful statement. From among your own cells, he says, there will be people who will prove to be wolves in sheep's clothing. And so Paul says to the church in Corinth in Chapter 9, verse 16, that if I preach the gospel, that in itself gives me no ground for boasting. Why? He says, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe is me, woe to me, if I do not preach the gospel. Paul wants them to understand that he must preach the gospel. He has to preach the gospel. He even calls the curse down upon himself. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's words seem to echo that of the Old Testament, many of the Old Testament prophets, who although they did not particularly enjoy preaching the message of doom and gloom that God had commanded them to preach to the nation of Israel, they felt compelled to do so. You see that in Jeremiah, for example. In Jeremiah chapter 20, you go back and you read that chapter, and in the first opening verses 
Jeremiah is complaining to God and essentially saying, I'm tired of being the messenger of bad news. I'm not making any friends here. But then he says in verse 9, if I say I will not mention him, speak about God. If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. So Jeremiah recognizes, I have to preach this message. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, he must preach the gospel, and here's why, verse 17. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. In other words, if I have chosen to do this, that's what he means of my own will. If I have chosen to do this, if I simply woke up one morning and decided, you know, I think I'm going to go into ministry. I think that'd be a good line of work. Then Paul has his reward, is what he's saying. He has his reward, and he should expect payment or accolades or indebtedness or what have, you, whatever, what have you because he is doing it for selfish motives. He is doing it for selfish ambition. But, as he goes on to say, but if not of my own will, if not of my own will, in other words, if I didn't choose to do this, this wasn't my choice, if not of my own will, then, as the New King James says, then I have simply been entrusted with a stewardship. I've been entrusted with a responsibility. In other words, Paul is reminding them that once again, he did not choose to be an apostle. It was not of his own will. Rather, he has been entrusted with a stewardship, with a responsibility. Remember that Paul was made an apostle on the Damascus road, on his way to Damascus to arrest Christ. He wasn't looking for Jesus. He wasn't looking for God. He was looking for Christians, but he wasn't looking for Christians so that they could teach him about Jesus either. And yet God stops him, Christ stops him and says, you are going to be my apostle, my official authoritative spokesperson to the Gentiles. This is what Paul meant when he said in Romans 1, 14 and 15. There, Paul writes, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I am under obligation, he says, not only because God made him an apostle and commanded him to go and preach the gospel to the world, but also because of what Christ has done for him. Paul was painfully aware of his own sinfulness and his own unworthiness to be a disciple of Christ, much less an apostle. For example, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, there he calls himself the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he calls himself the chief of sinners because he persecuted the church. 
Paul was always grieved by that, that he imprisoned fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, that he stood there giving his approval as Stephen was stoned to death. That's a horrible way to die, by the way. Paul stood there watching as Stephen was pelted with rocks over and over and over again until he died. Paul did not choose to go into ministry. He was called to it. This is really important because the point Paul is making is that no one should enter into ministry unless they know God has called them to it, regardless of the ministry. Whether you're just talking about being a Sunday school teacher or going on a, becoming a foreign missionary, you need to know this is what God wants you to do. Because those who simply choose to enter into ministry will end up believing that those that they minister to owe them something. They owe them money or accolades or some level of indebtedness. You see, because I chose to do this for you, so now you owe me something is the idea. But those who enter ministry because that is what God has called them to do will not feel that way. They will not think that way. They will be able to say to those they minister to, you don't owe me anything. You don't owe me money. You don't owe me praise. You don't owe me indebtedness because I don't do this primarily for you. I do this primarily for God. I do this for God's glory and because this is what God has called me to. This is what Paul wants the church in Corinth to understand. And this is why he has made no use of this right for them to support him. Now, we know Paul was supported by several churches. I want to just point that out to you quickly. He mentions that in places like 2 Corinthians 11, 9, Philippians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. He did receive material support from various churches, but Paul never demanded it. He never asked for it, and he never expected it. Simply because Paul did not choose to go into this line of work. This is what God called him to. And so Paul's first point from verse 15 was this, in case you missed it. He preaches the gospel without pay so as not to be robbed of his ground for boasting. His second point from verses 16 and 17 is this. He is compelled to preach the gospel because God has called him to it. But now his final and main point, his main thrust is in verse 18. And that is this. His reward is the joy of proclaiming the gospel free of charge. That's his reward. Notice verse 18. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make use of my right in the gospel. Paul's reward was the joy of being able to proclaim the gospel free of charge. 
Keep in mind that Paul suffered a great deal for preaching the gospel. If you don't believe me, go back and read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 16 and following. Just read like the next 10 verses. And he describes in great details all of the suffering that he has experienced as an apostle. Yet he went through an incredible amount of suffering. He was willing to go through an incredible amount of suffering because his reward was proclaiming the gospel. In other words, like Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, Paul ministered and endured suffering, proclaiming the gospel not because of what he might gain from it, not for money, not for praise, not so that people might be indebted to him, but simply for the joy of glorifying God and ministering to people the gospel. This was the same reason, by the way, that Jesus got down on his knees before the disciples and washed their feet. Because there was great joy in the mind of Christ. There was great joy in glorifying God his Father, and there was great joy in ministering to people. In the end, Christ saw himself as a servant of God the Father. And Paul saw himself as a servant of Christ. And this is the reason that Paul ministers and preaches the gospel and is willing to endure almost any amount of suffering because he sees himself as nothing more than a servant. He sees himself as nothing more than a servant, and a servant is not owed anything. In Luke chapter 17, verses 7 to 10, Jesus offered this parable, and he says, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward, you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. This is what Paul understood. This is what Paul understood about himself, and this is what so many Christians fail to understand today. <clears throat> is that when the Bible calls us to be a servant, it means just that. That we are called to be servants. Yet so often we know that intellectually, we know that theologically, but in practice, we are anything but. If most Christians were to insert themselves into Jesus' parable from Luke chapter 17, the story would go something like this. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once, recline at table? 
Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Then that servant will say to his master, you have got to be kidding me. I just plowed and worked in the field all day, and now you want me to fix you supper? Look, I know that you're the master and everything, but I'm pretty sure that what you're asking me is very unchristian. Remember that Jesus said to the disciples after washing their feet, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, and we could add your creator, your king, your savior, your redeemer, if I then, your Lord and teacher and God and king and creator, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Blessed are you, joyful Will you be if you do them? You will have joy if you follow the example of Christ. Hence, Paul's point to the church in Corinth is that he does not need nor want anything from them because his reward his reward is the joy of glorifying God through the preaching of the gospel and ministering to people. So also, Christians should never serve and minister for anything they might gain from others, but simply for the joy of glorifying God and ministering to people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we read passages like this. We reflect upon the parable of Christ from the Gospel of Luke. And in our mind, we know it to be true. But yet in our flesh and in our sin and in our pride, it is so difficult to do. To truly see ourselves as nothing more than a lowly servant placed upon this earth to serve you first and foremost and to serve those around us. But Father, we want to reflect upon the words of Christ that we will be blessed, that we will have joy if we follow the example of our Lord and Master and King and Redeemer. And so, Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would enable us to take in this message, to apply it to our lives, and that we would all seek to be the lowest among us. 
Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.